Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, the book of Hosea, chapters 7 and 8. Well, the last time we met, we moved into the fourth and final segment of Hosea chapter 7 that begins with verse 13. Now, this segment speaks of a divine punishment against the political government of Israel and the destruction of Ephraim, Israel, that's the northern kingdom, as a nation. Now, verse 13 begins with the word woe. And biblically, woe is nearly exclusively used to announce God's judgment, and that's how it's used here. Now, why God is bringing down woe upon Israel is spoken in, spoken in uh, broad terms in the final words of verse 14. He says, they turn away from me. Now, that broader context is best understood from an earlier chapter and verse, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And there the crime of Israel against Jehovah is defined as Israel having abandoned him in order to cultivate adultery. And in this instance, adultery is meant in two ways. First, indeed, the men and women of Ephraim Israel have become so confused in their religion morality and beliefs that adultery as well as uh, prostitution have become commonplace. And this was demonstrated by Gomer. And second, it serves to double as an adulterous behavior of Israel towards God, meaning idolatry. So here is the equation. As human sexual adultery is to religious spiritual idolatry towards God, so is general human immorality to religious spiritual apostasy towards God. And just to be clear, just as unmarried humans cannot commit sexual adultery between themselves, neither can pagans commit spiritual apostasy towards God. Okay? Only in what was a supposed to be faithful partnership of a married man to a woman can adultery occur. And only in a, what was supposed to be faithful partnership with God can apostasy occur. Now I hope you can see this. Job speaks of this equation similarly in Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Eov, Job, and this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. To fear God, this is a spiritual relationship, is to shun evil immoral human behavior. Fearing God and immoral human behavior, evil, are mutually exclusive in God's economy. 
So Hosea 7 verse 15 reads, It was I who trained and strengthened their arms, yet they plot evil against me. Now, probably more parents than not have either quietly thought, perhaps openly expressed this same thought. It was God who in love and patience trained up Israel. This must allude to a time when God began His training of Israel as the angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob, dislocating his hip, and then giving Jacob a new name, Israel. From there, Jacob, Israel, fathered twelve sons and at least one daughter that we know of, probably more. And those twelve sons became the twelve tribes of Israel. They were sent to Egypt, where more training occurred. Then God delivered them from that increasingly oppressive situation, gave Israel their own land, and then gave them the Torah, including the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. The training continued. As, God, as, as Israel journeyed through the wilderness, they entered the Promised Land, and as God taught them through both favor and discipline, His character and His ways. In doing this, Israel was strengthened, just as a child would be. But now, centuries later, what has this resulted in? Israel has rebelled. They've turned away from God, and now they plot evil against Him. How does anyone plot evil against God? By seeking after other gods. Idolatry. But also by abandoning His laws and commands in exchange for man-made doctrines and rules. That is, they apostatize from Him. Hosea 7.16, they return, but not upward. They are like an unreliable bow. Their leaders will die by the sword because of their angry talk. They will become a laughing stock in the land of Egypt. The first few words are a little bit ambiguous, but I don't think it's that hard to figure it out. The King James Version has rendered it, they return, but not to the Most High. Now, the words Most High are not there in either the Hebrew or the Greek manuscripts. So, what's happening is that the King James Version translator assumed that was, this was referring to God, as I do. And so, added in those words to try to bring clarity to it. Now, what is being said prophetically is, that soon Israel will come into dire straits, and then they will run to the Baals and to their Gentile neighbors as the solutions to their problems. They make the mistake of not turning to Jehovah. Instead, they just double down on their own misguided human efforts. Israel is compared to an unreliable bow. Sometimes it works like it should, 
Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it aims straight. Sometimes it doesn't, and so it misses the mark. <clears throat> the next phase, or rather next phrase in verse 16, is best rendered by the NAS Bible version. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. See, it's not really the anger of Israel's leadership's words as it is their insolence in beseeching pagan gods, pagan nations, rather than the God of Israel. Hosea relays to Israel that the result of this is that they are going to go running to Egypt after Assyria has laid them low, and then the Egyptian people in government may take them in, but they will be seen as a laughingstock for their folly. What was once a great nation is now humiliated and dissolved, and their God did this to them. Let's move on to chapter 8. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 8. I want you to read along with me. Hosea chapter 8. Starting with verse 1. Put the shofar to your lips. Like a vulture he swoops down on the house of Adonai because they have violated my covenant and sinned intentionally against my Torah. Will they cry out to me? We are Israel, God. We know you. Israel has thrown away what's good. The enemy will pursue him. They make kings, but without my authority. They appoint leaders, but without my knowledge. With their silver and gold, they make themselves idols. But these can lead only to their own destruction. Your calf, Shomron, has been thrown away. My fury burns against them. How long will it be until they're able to make themselves clean? Here is what Israel produces. A craftsman makes something. It's a non-god. The calf of Shomron will be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, so now they'll reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no ears, so it will yield no flower. And if it does yield any, foreigners will swallow it up. Israel's swallowed up. Now they are among the goyim, among the Gentiles, like a vessel nobody wants. For they have gone up to Asher, like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has bargained for lovers. But even if they bargain among the goyim, now I will round them up. Soon they will start to feel the burden of these kings and leaders. For Ephraim keeps building altars for sin. Yes, altars are sinful for him. I write him so many things from my Torah, yet he considers them foreign. They offer me sacrifices of flesh and eat them. But Adonai doesn't accept them. Now he will recall their crimes and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. For Israel forgot his maker and built palaces. And Judah made more fortified cities. But I will send fire on his cities, 
and it will consume their strongholds. I see Hosea chapter 8 as one of the most hard-hitting and at the same time the most concise and comprehensive oracles on what Israel is about to experience and why of the entire book. Some scholars claim that perhaps chapter 8, all of it, is a late edition. It was never there in the original. Again, it's primarily the style of writing that's questioned, plus the disbelief that prophetic prediction actually exists. And therefore, it raises their suspicion that it was written by another hand. Now, this ignores the practical reality that Hosea wrote this in segments at the same pace, no doubt, that he was receiving these several oracles from God. He did it over a time frame of 35 years. I want to put that in perspective for you. It would be as though you began writing something in 1987 and did so in segments and not finally concluding it until the year 2022. Looking back at my own writings, I don't sound the same as I did 25 years ago. Over that time, I'd like to think that I refined my style, or at least altered it a, a, a little bit, and I also had many revelations from God along the way that resulted in changing my mind on a few things. Perhaps also changing the way I thought about a subject, and thus choosing my words and, and my conclusions a little more carefully. So there's no good reason to exclude chapter 8 as not authentic. That said, because the entire book in general has come down to us in pretty poor condition, trying to translate it as honestly and accurately as possible is most challenging. Now, I want to also add, as I do from time to time, a comment about translating. See, we must always remember that many different people in a number of different locations, including multiple nations, over a period of hundreds of years, hand copied these hundreds of thousands of words of the Old Testament. Further, mistakes to individual letters within a word happened. Some Hebrew letters look very much the same, such that they have become well-known moments of error called ditography. The Dalit and the Resh, the Mem and the Samech, and, and a few other combinations regularly were copied incorrectly because they can appear almost identical. A letter can accidentally be dropped or repeated. Sometimes the final letter of a word is transferred to the first letter of the next word, accidentally. And then it happens that once that kind of error occurs, it can itself get recopied and repeated so the error becomes embedded in later texts. Jewish language scholars long ago 
began to detect some of the more obvious errors and corrected them. However, there are times when even they miss them or they guessed wrong, often inserting their own doctrinal worldview. Then we have the issue that more and more Hebrew language scholars are finally coming to acknowledge. The Bible's full of ancient expressions, some of which we're not and we're just not entirely sure of what meaning they're trying to impart. An expression occurs when the meaning of the sum of the words of a quote is quite different than its several parts. Example, don't let the cat out of the bag. Now we all know what that means. Don't divulge a secret. But what has any of that to do with cats or bags? Nothing. It's just an expression. So when it comes to understanding the Bible, we have to be careful how we define literal. Literal. See, taking the term literal is meaning as it was intended by the author in the original, none of which we have, by the way, in the context of his language, time, and culture is probably the best approach rather than taking literal to mean a word-for-word translation. Hosea is full of expressions, and it's a constant revolving door of metaphors. It also intersperses history with symbolism. It employs several literary techniques unique to the language, or at least to the range of Semitic languages to which Hebrew is related. Couple that with the state of disrepair of the oldest extant manuscripts for Hosea, and the challenge becomes even greater. Now we're going to do as best we can to extract the meaning, and I'm going to alert you when there could be multiple possibilities. Now immediately in verse 1 we are confronted with the situation I just raised. The complete Jewish Bible is in general agreement with most standard English Bible versions. However, an alternative opening is proposed by a few modern scholars. It is, God waits like a young lion, Jehovah like an eagle over the house. Okay. In addition to the bad repair of the individual words themselves, in the old Greek manuscripts, when the words are translated strictly word for word, what it literally says is, to their bosoms like the earth. Anybody have any idea what that means? It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't correspond to any known expression. And it doesn't seem to fit the context. So, some translators try to make more sense of it by employing metaphors and similes that had been previously used in Hosea, even if it's hard to make the text support it. Now, obviously, the Greek version has something wrong with it that has been transmitted down to us incorrectly. 
Well, another very interesting attempt to restore verse 1 is Ginsburg's. He says it should read, Put a ram's horn to your mouth addressing the house of Israel. Now, his reason for this translation is really quite ingenious. Now, bear with me. I'm not going to get into all the technical details. Okay, but here's the Reader's Digest version that involves both an, act, uh, an, an ancient Hebrew expression and a fairly clear copyist error. In the part that reads, like an eagle, or vulture, over the house of Jehovah, Ginsburg sees that a copyist error accidentally moved the final letter of, the, of a word to the first letter of the word that immediately followed it, such that when that letter is moved back to where it belongs, then the meaning becomes clearer. Further, that the Hebrew phrase, all bet Yehovah, meaning over the temple of Yehovah, it's a misinterpretation of all bet, and then there's a final yod at the end of it, because the insertion of the final yod catch this, was an abbreviation for the word Israel. And that was standard for that era. Okay? A yud as the final letter of a word, and it very often just simply was an abbreviation for the word Israel. Now, I promise we're not going to go over, over every phrase in this much detail, but I wanted to give you a real example to begin Hosea chapter 8 of what modern Hebrew language scholars are beginning to discover and to realize, and how much this can help us to reach a proper interpretation. So, if we go with Ginsburg's solution, then what is being meant? What does it mean to put a ram's horn to the mouth? Well, a careful study of Hosea and Isaiah reveals that one had great influence over the other, Pro probably Hosea over Isaiah. So we find this similar thought in Isaiah 58, 58 1. Shout out loud, don't hold back, raise your voice like a shofar, proclaim to my people what rebels they are, to the house of Jacob their sins. See, we're meant to understand Hosea 8.1 then, somewhat like this, okay? Prophet, cry out with your mouth like it's a ram's horn, a shofar, like an eagle over the house of Israel. Now, a shofar was regularly used to sound a warning, because it could be heard for some distance. So the prophet Hosea was to be very bold in spreading this series of oracles against Israel as a grave and an urgent warning. The word translated in some Bibles as eagle, as other Bibles as vulture, is nesher. Nesher can mean eagle or it can mean vulture, depending on its use. Likely, because the loud, ominous screeching of an eagle can startle, that's what's meant here. But it's not impossible that it could have also meant a vulture feeding on the carcasses of dead Israelites. 
I'm going to pause now to both explain and implore because it's so much on my heart. I've attempted to draw a distinct and unmistakable parallel between Hosea's era and the current era of the world in this first dozen lessons because we need to open our eyes to understand where it certainly appears we may be in redemption history. If we are indeed but an eyelash in time away from entering the end times, then what Hosea is told to prophesy to Israel looks very much like what Revelation and some of Christ's words in the Gospels say to the church about what the end times is going to look like and why God has chosen to finally bring that full weight of His wrath upon us. See, the thing is, we ought to expect the world to look like it does because it's the world. I mean, pagans, the vast majority of this planet's inhabitants, are going to behave as pagans. Shouldn't be any surprise there. Notice that in Hosea, however, church, pay attention to this. Notice that in Hosea, God's not dressing down and warning pagans, He's not warning the Gentile nations. Rather, all this threatening and judgment is being directed to his own set-apart people. It's those who claim allegiance to him that have the biggest problem with him and the most to lose. You can't lose what you've never had. Bringing this forward, then, it is most fair to apply this same message to address the church as a religious institution and to address believers as individuals. I mean, after all, for centuries, the church has claimed to have replaced Israel, something I deny is the case. So does that mean that along with God's blessings, the church also will get to suffer God's curses and wrath. Well, much of the church says, no, we only get to keep the blessings. Israel gets to keep all their curses. Nevertheless, Christianity willingly accepts the mantle of being God's mouthpiece on earth, even his shofar, if you would, so in that very narrow sense, we are to act as prophets. You know, we much prefer to shout out the good news, don't we? Rather than speak about that other side of the coin. Because if we do, we're a little bit afraid we're going to look like nuts. But we're divinely called to be the prophets of God's warnings as well. And when we look at what happened to the Old Testament biblical prophets as, as their reward for shouting the warnings, it's no wonder most believers don't want the job. 
I mean, fellow believers, if the world and the church isn't in bad enough shape yet to get you to notice, to stand up and be counted, well, I doubt nothing's ever going to motivate you to do what God has commanded us to do. As a community of believers, we must take the truth, all the beauty, all the ugliness, to the church first, just as God did with his prophets, just as the opening chapters of Revelation did to the representative seven churches of Asia. Asia. Now, I can say with some confidence that while the accusations God was making to Israel applied to every Israelite, there of course were those exceptions who remained faithful to the Orthodox Hebrew faith of Jehovah. And in America, we have the cultural proverb of, if the shoe fits, wear it. Meaning, if it applies to you, well, then take heed, also implying that if it doesn't apply to you, eh, forget I ever said it. Apparently no one, perhaps only a few, and Ephraim Israel thought this warning applied to them. Who, me? They thought. What do you mean, God, that you won't accept my worship? You don't really mean that just because I worship Baal that I also can't properly worship you. I mean, by doing this, I'm obeying your commandment to love my neighbor. I mean, what could be wrong with love? My religious leaders had these wonderful images of you made and, and set up and scores of worship sites built as well. And since they're all experts, well, they must be right. Besides, everyone else is doing it. Sure seems okay to me. After all, we've remained quite prosperous which can only be a sign from heaven that you approve. Hmm. See, all I'm doing in these remarks I just made is taking from the book of Hosea. But how easily that can and does apply to our Judeo-Christian religious institutions and to so many believers at large. I mean, i got a question for you. Do you know anyone who thinks they're committing apostasy. Anyone? Anyone who thinks that whatever it is that they and their particular church believe could possibly be an error. Well, the mere fact of 3,000 plus Christian denominations says they can't all be right. See, Israel did what they did because they'd been doing it for a long time. It had become the norm. It had become their way of life. Generations had been raised only knowing one way, the way it currently was. So any thought of challenging the status quo was quickly put down by the majority. See, that's what happened to the biblical prophets. You, I, all of us, 
we have a duty, not an option. We don't get to opt in, opt out. To be God's shofar, not so much to the world as to our fellow believers. Was this going to win you popularity contests? Are people going to line up to thank you? Unlikely. And of course, you will be accused of church bashing. You will be told that you want Christians to give up Christ and turn to Judaism. Or just plain disturbing the peace of the church and being unkind to your believing brothers and sisters. You know, maybe you'll be known as a know-it-all. After all, you're such a minority, clearly the majority must have it right and you're wrong. See, again, this is what I just said to you is everything that God's prophets suffered. This is what happened when they took God's warning to their own people. The verdict? Get up and get counted. See, when you hear someone speaking nonsense, about morality in whatever form, or some seriously flawed man-made doctrine, try to inject your voice. Don't be afraid. God is with those who are doing His work, even if it might result in some discomfort. Count on Him. <laughs> Don't count on your own persuasive power. Tell the truth. Let the chips fall where they may. Okay, speech over. Moving on now. Verse 1 concludes with what the source of Israel's wickedness is. They rebelled against God's covenant. Here meaning the Torah, more specifically against God's law, the law of Moses. See, here's the thing. Prior to Moses and Mount Sinai, it is defensible that Israel could claim they did not know what God wanted of them or what pleased Him. But at Mount Sinai, God's laws and commands were given in specifics and Moses ordered to write them down and for all Israel to be taught them. Moreover, they were also warned what would happen if the commands that were now openly known to them were violated. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. Look, I'm presenting you today with on the one hand life and good, and on the other death and evil, and that I'm ordering you today to love Adonai your God, to follow His ways, to obey His mitzvot, to obey His commands, regulations and rulings, for if you do, you will live. You will increase your numbers, and Adonai your God will bless you in the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, if you refuse to listen, if you are drawn away to prostrate yourselves before other gods and serve them, I am announcing to you today that you will certainly perish. 
You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call on heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have presented you with life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life so that you will live, you and your descendants, loving Adonai your God, paying attention to what he says, clinging to him, for that is the purpose of your life. On this depends the length of time you will live in the land, Adonai swore, you would give to your ancestors and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I called on you for boldness, so I must do no less. Church, do you seriously think this does not apply to you? That the Torah and the Law of Moses, its blessings and its curses, are only for another people, if anybody at all. According to Christ, that's not the case. I know that most of you have been taught that the law is no longer for you to obey. But the fact is, you've been taught something that is not true. I was taught the same. Only by God's grace did He open my mind to accept that and to seek Him as He wants to be sought. It was a very humbling experience. This untruth was an intentional perpetration for the sake of a few ambitious Gentiles long ago wresting control of the growing Jesus movement away from the Jews, where it all began. This new religion, a reshaped Gentiles only religion, happily sanctioned and championed by Emperor Constantine, represented power and opportunity for the elite. By early in the fourth century, every element of the true Orthodox, biblically grounded faith, other than for Yeshua as the Messiah, was disposed of by the now powerful Roman Church. Jesus was given a new character and purpose. The Father, well, He was retired. The Torah and the Old Testament along with Him. The Church did not lose its way. It was intentionally guided off course in order to satisfy the agendas of men, just as it was for Ephraim, Israel. Now, I suppose this is why I have a true soft spot, soft spot in my heart for ancient Israel. It's so easy to retain and rely on incorrect, an incorrect belief when it's all you know. And it's not so easy to change. I mean, by Hosea's time, I doubt the priests knew any better. They just simply taught what they'd been taught. Now, does that let priests or even the common people off the hook? Goodness, no. 
God tells them that the truth, the Torah, was right there for them to see, to study, to learn. It was given to them in writing. But they chose not to know. They preferred what men had created. Now verse 2 has Israel pleading with God. And after so many decades of unfaithfulness and false worship, Israel is now experiencing an imploding economy. It's under threat from the north and the south. So they reverse course and cry out to God. They claim their devotion to him. Now, most Bible historians think this prophetic utterance finally came to pass around 733 B.C. when Assyria made its major, its major incursion of conquest. It was usual when a large nation or empire invaded a country that it would take more than one time and to, to, to finally completely conquer an adversary. See, there were only a few months per year when the weather was favorable and supplying an expeditionary force was complicated and it was subject to so many variables. So Assyria made two or three thrusts into Ephraim, Israel, before Samaria, the capital of, of Israel, finally fell. Israel's sudden change of heart was ingenuous. It was hypocritical. Nothing indicates that they had changed their ways. They merely intensified their worship. The NES, pardon me, the NES does a better job with this verse. In Hosea 8.2 in the NES it says, They cried out to me, My God, we of Israel know thee. The Hebrew word translated as know is yada. It does not mean, as modern English most often, often uses the word know. That is, as being aware of something, having information about something. In ancient Hebrew, it meant to be in full allegiance or to have an intimate relationship with someone. In marriage, in the Hebrew culture, for a man to know his wife meant to have intimate relations with her. So Israel's claim went beyond the hypocritical to the absurd. Israel had long ago lost their intimate relationship with Yahweh. They were just too blind and busy with their lives to notice what they had done. Verse 3 begins, Israel has rejected what is good. In Hebrew, the word tov means good. However, much like the word shalom doesn't just mean peace or, or well-being, but rather that the source of that peace or well-being is God, it works similarly with the word tov, good. Tov inherently leans towards a godly, moral, divinely inspired good. See, when we think of virtues, we think of things that are considered as good attributes by our society. However, biblically, if a virtue is defined as a good thing, a tov thing, 
then it can only be a godly thing. If it's not, then it is a virtue of human invention that in God's eyes is no virtue at all. Now, some translators say that this is to be interpreted, Israel has rejected the good one. I only mention it because it is occasionally used that way, but there is no actual grammatical or textual case for it. And I've actually never even heard it reasonably explained why some translate it that way. The result of consciously rejecting the good, the tov, God's definition of right and morality is Israel's enemy is going to chase them down. Well, clearly, at this time, this is referring to Assyria. Well, in verse 4, Jehovah continues his diatribe by specifying the trespasses, the crimes, really, against the covenant of Moses as regards the nation's government, but also against the offensive religion that had been crafted. Essentially, God is disavowing any sanction of the string of Israelite kings that have come and gone in rapid succession, usually through violence. And there are some scholars that take this to mean that God is against the concept of Israel's monarchy, or that unless it is a Davidic king, no other monarch should be on the throne. Now, this takes matters much too far, and it defies the overall message of the Torah and the Old Testament in general. The issue is not with the office of the monarch, but rather who these men are and how they wound up on the throne. As Douglas Stewart puts it, Yahweh alone determines who can be king either by charismatic gifts are by direct revelation through a prophet. He gives kings to nations. They do not decide who their kings will be. In Torah class lessons on others of the Bible books, I have mentioned that all, all of Israel's legitimate kings were considered anointed ones, Mashiach. Messiah. And they were also called sons of God. See, the king of Israel was to be Jehovah's earthly agent, having an especially close relationship with him. And he was to operate specifically on Israel's behalf. God would allow no one else the privilege to make such an important choice. But this divine choice of kings often extended to Gentile nations as well, even though they were unaware of it. We get an example of this in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings 19, verses 15 and 16, Adonai said to him, Go by way of the Damasek Desert, that's Damascus Desert, and when you get there, anoint Hazael to be king over Aram, that's Syria. Also anoint Yehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Avel Mochla, to be a prophet after you. 
So, kings were not to be a choice of the people. Perhaps this is a major, or the major flaw in the armor of democracy as we know it today. It's probably the best of all government systems currently in practice on earth. But God's system involves his choice of an unelected, all-powerful king. I'd have to say that especially during the second half of my lifetime, our choice of government leaders hasn't necessarily been the best. Greed and avarice and egotism, corruption of every kind, eventually overtakes them all. The temptations of power just seem to be too great. Now I'm sure thankful that perhaps Yeshua will soon return and we can get back to the God-appointed king who rules justly forever. Now Yehovah says that these leaders are made without his knowledge. Now, this certainly doesn't mean they were strangers to him. We fall back to the word yada to explain. This speaks, remember, of an allegiance and an intimate relationship. Because God didn't choose this king, then he held no intimate relationship with him, so the king was doomed to failure. In the second half of this verse, Israel's idolatrous religion is assailed. Hosea 8.4, with their silver and gold they make themselves idols, but these can lead only to their own destruction. Now probably the image that Hosea and most Israelites would have had in mind with these words is those calf gods that Jeroboam had fashioned long ago and then set up in the main centers of worship located in Dan and Bethel. Now the Hebrew word translated here as, as um, idols is asabim. It might be the most correct to interpret it as images rather than idols. This term asabim is used 17 times in the Hebrew Bible. It always means images of people or images of animals. Jeroboam's calf gods, a mainstay of the religion of the northern kingdom, were an apostasy because it was exactly the sort of thing legislated against in the covenant of Moses. We can read of when exactly these calf gods happened in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. After seeking advice, the king made two calves of gold and said to the people, You've been going up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He placed one in Bethel, the other in Dan, and the affair became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one in Bethel and all the way to Dan to worship the other. He also set up temples on the high places and made priests from among all the people, even though they weren't descended from Levi. See, in this we read not only who did this terrible thing, but also why. 
King Jeroboam simply did not want his people taking their money and their offerings to the temple in Jerusalem. Money and power, these were his motivations. It's a little different in many religious organizations throughout the ages. Money and power. Now the, the uh, King James Version does a better job in translating the last few words of verse 4, where it says, Of their silver and their gold they have made them idols, that they may be cut off. All right. Being cut off in Hebrew is karet. Karet. It's a term that means to be set apart, but in a negative way. And then isolated. So an unclean person was karet. Although usually just for a few hours until they bathed and then waited for the new day to begin. In this sense of it, the word karet is much more ominous in tone. It means that God was cutting Israel off from himself in the spiritual idea of it. However, from the mindset of a Middle Easterner of the 8th century BC, this included Israel, it was part and parcel of what happens when being exiled from your land. Since the erroneous belief was that Jehovah was Israel's national God that had power only within that nation's boundaries, well, then once scattered, Israel was certainly cut off from him. Verse 5 directly speaks of these calf gods. And then tells Samaria that these are going to suffer destruction. Why Samaria if no calf god existed there? Well, some scholars have postulated that perhaps one did exist there, although there's no record of it. But the better solution is to understand that Samaria is the seat of government and religion in Ephraim Israel and therefore as the power who orders worship of these calf gods as Israel's God. That is, Samaria was to Israel what London is to England or Washington DC is to the USA. So whatever national policies that the people of the nation are to follow emanate from there. God says his anger burns against those calf gods. Well, the final few words of this verse ask the rhetorical question then, how long will it be until they are able to make themselves clean? Now literally, again word for word literally, this translates rather awkwardly as until when how long? But the key to getting the gist of the question is the Hebrew term admate that means it's enough. It could in modern English be properly rendered, stop it. Gruber says that the sense of it is this, it's long enough that they, the Israelites of 8th century BC Samaria, behave as though they're incapable of purifying themselves from contamination by worship of these illegitimate 
calf gods. All right. We're going to end here for today, and we will begin at verse 6 next time. Okay?